You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, this evening I want us to think together about one of the most important events in the history of the whole world. The events of the Pentecost that we've read about. Because the events that have been described to us really are a hinge on which all of history turns. With what we heard about, history turns a corner. And yet, as important as these events are, if you've got books of history at home, you are unlikely to find it there as one of the most important events in world history. But within the Bible, it is one of the decisive moments of transition. What we've heard about brings about a whole new era. It's an event which stands alongside the birth and the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. It brings about this whole new era. Now, if you look at some of the words that are used to describe it in verses 6 to 12, you'll see that the people who witnessed these things take place struggled to try to describe exactly what happened. The feelings that they had were those of bewilderment, astonishment, and confusion. The people were simultaneously amazed and perplexed at what had taken place. And if you're here this this evening asking the question, well, what on earth did happen at Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out? Well, that is a great question because if you look in verse 13, you'll see that that is the exact same question which was asked by those who witnessed it. What do these things mean? What are these great and mighty works which have taken place? I'm going to try to think about Pentecost and its significance by way of three questions, simple, straightforward ones. First of all, we'll work through together, why was this needed? Then secondly, what actually happened when the Spirit was poured out? And then finally, we'll think about the results of it all. What did it lead to? What took place as a result of all of this? So why is it needed? What took place? And what happened as a result of it all? Well, the Pentecost that we read about here in Acts 1 and Acts 2 was not the first Pentecost. Pentecost already was a very important date in the calendar of God's people. Pentecost was a holiday that had been around for a long time. It was a holiday feast, and a holiday like this had two particular meanings, both of which I think we'll be able to identify with and understand. The first one was, this was something like an agricultural feast. Now, we're familiar with that. We keep our harvest seasons. It's often a big event in the life of Some congregations were familiar with coming together in order to give thanks to God for the gift of our food, for God's faithfulness through the year out in the fields. And at Pentecost, they met together in order to thank God for the harvest. The first fruits of the harvest were gathered in, and they were given to God as a gift, and it was a way of saying thank you and expressing gratitude. 
So the people met together for this harvest festival. But it was also a holiday with historical significance. At this holiday, they were turning their minds back to remember something which happened centuries beforehand. Again, here in Northern Ireland, we are no strangers to the idea of a holiday, which is all about, for many people, turning back to remember events which took place a long time ago. Here, with the case of Pentecost, the people were turning their minds back hundreds of years to the time of Moses and the Exodus. This was a holiday when they came together in order to thank God for the gift of the law. So Pentecost, if you can think of the different syllables that make up the word Pentecost, there's Pentanus, we guess that's something to do with five, more precisely, it's 50. And they remembered at Pentecost that 50 days after the Passover, God brought them to Mount Sinai and he gave them the gift of the law. So it's a harvest festival and it's a time to remember God's goodness in giving the law to his people. But Israel had a checkered history when it came to God's law. It had a checkered history that reached back more than a millennium, more like 1,500 years. And throughout that time, God's people had shown their inability in order to keep God's law. And their problems with the law, down through the centuries of their history, are our problems with the law today. That's because deep down, right through history, right to this very day, the human heart reacts to God's law in one of two ways. The one way, the first way, is that law becomes the main thing that characterizes religion. Law-keeping really amounts to the totality of what is done. So that's one response from the human heart to God's law. And the other response, a very different one, is to dismiss the idea of law and any talk of obedience completely. And to say, law is really something that you need to get past and move beyond if you're going to progress spiritually and enjoy fulfillment. Those who suggest this position think that the law really has nothing at all to do with a genuine relationship with God. We could sum up these two responses, two wrong responses, by saying people either on one hand believe the law is going to be the thing that saves you if you keep it, or on the other hand, law is something that you need to move beyond if you're going to enjoy fulfillment and satisfaction in this life. And back to the events of Acts 2. Because at that precise moment in Israel's history, Israel's problem with the law was the former one. They had twisted how they understood the giving of the law, and therefore they missed the point altogether of what Pentecost focused on. Their focus was instead upon their own achievements, their religious efforts, 
and their moral accomplishments. They had really taken the feast and turned it upside down on its head. The focus became all to do with human works and efforts and accomplishments, and they missed the grace of God that the feast pointed to. Now, let me try to illustrate this, and I want to do that by way of one of the important Old Testament passages that sets the backdrop to what we read in Acts 2. Acts 2 is one of those chapters in the Bible which has little echoes running the whole way through it of all sorts of different passages that have gone before in the Bible. But one of the really important ones is what took place at the Tower of Babel. You see, there was a time when the peoples of this earth spoke a common language. The multitude of languages that we know today were at that stage unknown. And at Babel, the peoples of the earth united together to make a name for themselves by building a great tower, a great tower of self-made religion. And in response to this, God came down and he divided the nations, the languages of the people of the earth. So what was the big problem with Babel? Why did God take this so seriously? Well, what we see at Babel is the perennial problem of human religion, a project all about human effort and human achievement. You know the way that it goes. Follow certain steps, and if you keep these rules, well then, you will advance and you will achieve. And the hope is that if enough is done, eventually you'll arrive and we'll reach heaven itself. And with that, ultimately, the focus is about making a name for ourselves. That's the phrase from the book of Genesis to describe the project at Babel. The people came together and they said, we will make for ourselves a great name through this project. And because of that, God scattered the people and gave them different languages. It's one response to God's law, trying to climb that tower through our efforts, through our achievements, with the hope that somehow at the end, we will reach the divine. Now, that approach one that's focused on our efforts and our accomplishments, keeping the law as the totality of what's done, that had not always been Israel's problems. At times through their history, their response to God's law sounded much, much more contemporary. It sounded like the sorts of attitudes that, well, you perhaps have yourself or that you're familiar in hearing other people talk about in our world today. That approach is one that says we need to get rid of these things which are to do with law and rules and tradition. We need to sweep those things away because the way to fulfillment, the way to being an authentic person is all about independence and self-discovery. So two different responses to God's law. It happened through the centuries with Israel and the responses that we can see today. One says, 
law keeping to the totality of what's done, and if I done enough, I do enough, well then perhaps I might achieve all that I hope for. The other says we need to sweep that away because independence, being true to self, that is the way to fulfillment. Why was Pentecost needed? Well, because Israel's problems, just like our problems, ran deep. They either turned the law into something that they thought would save them, or they tried to get away from God's law altogether. But God is so gracious, even though we have this great problem in our hearts. God promises through the prophets of old that a time would come when God would intervene in order to deal with sin and to deal with our hearts. Listen to just a couple, three verses from the Old Testament that give that hope of God intervening in order to change our hearts. Here's Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's why Pentecost was needed. Or Jeremiah 31, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Or Isaiah 44, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. This wasn't the first Pentecost, but this was the first Pentecost when the hope of the prophets came to its fulfillment, when God poured out his spirit in order to change our hearts in a fundamental way. Let's move on and think about the events that actually took place on this Pentecost Sunday. What actually happened? What took place? Well, Pentecost came, the disciples had been told to wait, to wait for the promise of the Father, and they obey, and this great miraculous day finally comes. Now you get the sense that trying to describe the different phenomena of that day, the phenomena of sound and sight and speech, was taxing for those involved. Even when you think of the sound of it, it says something came from heaven which was like the sound of mighty rushing wind. God came and in response to their waiting and the wind of God came and blew amongst them. They were told to wait in Jerusalem and that's what they did as they waited. God came down. Can you see that this is the exact opposite of the Babel principle? It deals with that perennial problem of our hearts because Pentecost shows us that the gospel is not about our ascent, trying to climb the steps to move higher and advance. No, it's completely the opposite way around. It's not about our ascent, but it is instead about his descent. The Spirit, the wind of God blows, and it comes changing their hearts. This is the power of the age to come, come amongst them. 
So there's something which sounds like a mighty wind, and then there's fire. Now, right through the Bible, fire is a sign of God's holy presence. Pentecost, they were remembering the Exodus and the gift of the law. Well, we know about the burning bush. It was burned but not consumed. We know about the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness. We know that when the tabernacle and temple were built, the fire burnt continually on the altar. Well, here the fire comes, and it descends, filling the room with flames, and they are not destroyed, but not consumed. The reason why they're not consumed when the fire of God's holy presence comes is because Jesus Christ has died. On the cross, as it were, he was consumed in the fiery wrath of God. Now that the price has been paid for, the Spirit comes amongst them, the fire falls, and it separates and divides and comes to rest over them tells us that Jesus Christ is king, that he's been crowned and enthroned at the Father's right hand as Lord and Christ. Jesus is at the Father's right hand, and now what has happened is precisely what he said would happen. Jesus Christ sits down at the Father's right hand, and he receives from the Father the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he then pours the Holy Spirit out on the church. The church here on earth is united to Christ through the Spirit. They're His temple because the Spirit of Christ is dwelling in them. The Spirit comes, the fire falls, they're not consumed, but it is like a refiner's fire. This fire comes and it changes and purifies and it shines through shines through, it shines out as they speak. After this, Peter lifts up his voice and preaches to the great crowd. Just think about that for a moment. Think about the great change that has taken place in this man who only weeks beforehand had denied his Lord. wonder was anyone in the crowd that day who actually heard Peter deny Jesus Christ on the night before he died. I wonder how many people in the crowd had been amongst those who had been chanting out on the day that Jesus died, crucify, crucify. Here's Peter, and he has been changed. He's been transformed because this refining fire comes. He has been transformed through the power of the age to come. And he and the other apostles are given the gift of tongues. It's as if those tongues of fire on their heads then issued out in tongues of other languages. Now, this was a great supernatural work. None of these men were skilled in languages. None of them had taken a course. None of them had gone to learn the language by an immersive experience somewhere else. Verse 7 tells us that they were Galileans. Galileans at the time had a reputation for being uneducated. They were thought of as parochial, uncultured people. There was a notoriously heavy Galilean accent. And yet these men got up and preached, and they were given this gift 
of being able to preach the gospel in the languages of the people who had gathered together that day in Jerusalem. The people heard what God had done. It was coming from the lips of people who spoke just like them, those that they knew back home. They spoke with perfect clarity in this previously unknown language. The crowds were left utterly bewildered. This gift of tongues here is a demonstration that this gospel message is not designed for just a few people off in a corner. God's purpose for this good news is that it will go out right to the very ends of the earth. God was gathering together a new humanity, and you could say on this Pentecost Sunday, it was as if the whole world was there in Jerusalem. The gospel's there deliberately breaking through all these different language barriers. Look at verses 9 to 11. There, there are 15 different regions mentioned, and it's as if Luke is recording for us every point that there is on the compass. You go to the east with the Parthians, the Medes, and the residents of Mesopotamia. Then you move back to the center, to Judea, and then north to Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. And then you go way down south to Egypt and to the Libyan city of Cyrene, then west across to Rome, and from there to the islands with the Cretans and to the desert peoples, the Arabs. A great foretaste for us of the final triumph when God will gather in men and women and boys and girls from every town and tribe and nation and language. The fire falls. The disciples are not consumed. They are refined and they are transformed. And they speak this message to all the peoples of the earth. One last question as we draw things to a close. And simply this, well, what was next? What was next for them? What's next for us today? If we could spin the question around and ask it in a different form, it might be to say this. What does it mean for a church to truly be Pentecostal? Now, we know that there are Pentecostal churches, and on Presbyterian churches, you certainly don't see Pentecostal written up on the notice board. But there's a really important sense in which a Presbyterian church is a genuine, authentic Pentecostal church. And we're going to think about those things now when we think about what happened next. What's a Pentecostal church like? What's an apostolic church like in the book of Acts? The first thing to see is that it is a church which is empowered for mission. The Spirit is poured out by the risen Christ. And what does it result in? Well, it brings about proclamation. This great sermon that we read together in Acts 2 from Peter, the man who has been so fundamentally changed by the power of the age to come, he proclaims the gospel. And note this because it's important. The sermon that was preached on the, this Pentecost Sunday was a sermon whose focus was not on the Holy Spirit. This is a sermon 
all about Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection and ascension. And that shouldn't surprise us because we know from the way that Jesus spoke about the ministry of the Spirit that the thing that the Spirit loves to do is to take the spotlight and to shine it on Jesus Christ. The Spirit loves to point away from himself and to point people to Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we'll read about in Peter's sermon. It's a sermon focused on Jesus, the fact that his work is finished and that now he has been exalted to the Father's right hand. This is a church that's strengthened. It's empowered to speak, verse 11, about the mighty works of God, not about the great things that we have done, but instead about what God has done. Back at Babel, we keep returning to that, at Babel they were trying to make a name for themselves. Now their focus is on the name of Jesus, glorifying his name. And in verse 21, when people call in the name of Jesus, when they call in the name of the Lord, they're saved. A Pentecostal church, an apostolic church, is a church which proclaims the message of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, and reigning. Here's another mark, another thing that flows out of God's work at Pentecost. There is spirit-filled unity. There's this really obvious and demonstrable sense that people from all sorts of different backgrounds are being brought together in this church. And they're being brought together in great numbers, 3,000 people from those different points of the compass and the lands even beyond that, they are brought in. The Spirit brings about unity. The Spirit comes on all of them. It's not as if some of the Christians don't receive the gift of the Spirit here. It's poured out upon them all. The Spirit brings about unity amongst God's people. And then one last thing, one final mark of a Pentecostal church, a third thing that flows from all of this, and it is mission. The gospel is to go to all people. All the nations are to be invited. And that's what the book of Acts is going to tell us about, about the gospel going out into Jerusalem, and then beyond Jerusalem into Judea, then crossing another border into Samaria, and then one more still going out to the very ends of the earth. And so the book finishes in Rome, at the center of the world at that time, with Paul there in chains, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that it is not about might. It is not about power. It is not about human accomplishment nor about human achievement. God says, it is by my Spirit. That Spirit poured out upon the church, empowering the church to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. And through that message, people are brought back to their true spiritual home. Our wanderings in this earth come to an end. Our estrangement from God is over. Humanity has tried again and again and again 
to create and to achieve some kind of utopia, some kind of heaven and earth. And all our projects to do that are futile because those things only come about through the work of God, through the work of Jesus Christ, taken and applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So Pentecost is a great hinge event. It is a mighty moment in the history of this world because it indicates that a whole new age has begun. The power of the future has invaded the present. And when that power is at work amongst us, well, then we are strengthened for proclamation. We're united together in unity, and then we're sent out to love and serve God in the world. Let us pray. Thank you.